Let's turn together in the Bible to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. We're going to read verse 1 to verse 5. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper... The devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot the son of Simon to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for this time this morning to be together. We love joining our voices and our songs to the the worship that is happening all over the world and that is happening in heaven. And Father, I ask you that you would take us in our weakness now and help us as we turn our attention to your holy word, to this inspired book and the, the words and the actions of Jesus Father, I ask that you would help us to understand and see what we need to see. And Lord, that you'd be honored and glorified, that you would be magnified in our eyes and in our hearts. And that after considering this passage, Lord, we would leave here amazed at who you are, eager to serve you, eager to worship you, eager to tell others about you. So Lord, we just commit this to you beseeching your help, because apart from you, Lord, we can do nothing, we can hear nothing, we can see nothing. We cannot worship you without your help. So, Lord, we commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. We are standing now in the entryway of the second half of the Gospel of John. The foyer, or as you call it around here in Utah, the foyer. (laughs) And what we've entered, brothers and sisters, when, when you're reading through the Gospel of John and you come to the second half, what you enter and what lies before you is no little shack. You come through the gate, you come through the door, and you're not in a little shack but you've entered a magnificent cathedral of theology and instruction. Do you believe that's true? The second half of the Gospel of John is a magnificent cathedral of theology and instruction. I've entitled this morning's message, I've given it the thrilling title, An Introduction to the Second Half of the Gospel of John. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) But what I hope to do this morning 
is thrilling, and that is to give us a sense of the importance of this second half and the substance of the second half, what the second half of the Gospel of John is all about, and that's thrilling. It's the Mount Everest of the Mount Everest. The Gospel of John itself is the high point in the Bible, and within the Gospel of John, we've arrived at the high point within the Gospel of John. So we've come to something truly significant. I've divided this sermon up into three sections. First, I'd like to speak about the second half of the Gospel of John in general and just make a couple brief observations about it. Uh, Secondly, I'd like to discuss the largest part of the next half of the Gospel of John, which which is called by scholars the Farewell Discourse. So I'd like to talk about that and discuss that. And then lastly, the first five verses that we read in my final part this morning, I'd like to proceed to examine the entryway and look at the first thing that Jesus does. Because the first thing that Jesus does in the second half of the Gospel of John sets the tone for everything else that follows. I hope you've seen that. It's not that he does what he does here in John chapter 13 and then we can kind of just forget that and move on to the other stuff he says and does. But what he does there sets the tone and really encapsulates everything else that he's going to, to do. So we'll finish by looking at that, the entryway, those first five verses. So first of all, the second half of the Gospel of John in general. Now let's put this second half of the Gospel of John in perspective against the first half. The first half of the Gospel of John spans roughly three years. It spans roughly three years, which it begins with the uh, the proclamation, the ministry of John the Baptist, pointing to Jesus and saying, you know, he points, John talks to his disciples and says, you know, I'm not ultimately the one whom you're looking for. I'm pointing you now to the one that you're looking for. And he's the one who I've prepared the way for. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the, the gospel of John begins there and the first half ends when we've come to Passion Week. And it's, according to the, those who study chronology of the Bibles, it's about three years. But when you hold the second half of the Gospel of John up against the first half, we realize the second half of the Gospel of John is roughly, how long? One day. One day. A Hebrew day ran from sundown to sundown. And the second half of the Gospel of John starts at sundown. It starts when Jesus has his evening meal with his disciples, the Passover meal. And it runs roughly to the evening where the criminals that are on either side of Jesus as he's being crucified have their legs broken because the sun is going down and they need to speed up their death. And Jesus has a spear shoved into his side to confirm that he's dead. Now, I say roughly one day because the the rest of the Gospel of John does talk about his resurrection and some of the events that follow. But the lion's share of the second half of the Gospel of John is one day, right? And so you hold that up against the first half and you realize there's a major concentration happening in the Gospel of John. John's been kind of sweeping us through Jesus' public ministry and now all of a sudden he concentrates our attention on that final day. And in essence, what John is saying is this. What I'm about to show you, my reader, 
the last day of Jesus' fleshly life is massively important. It's the hour that everything was leading up to. It's the hour for which Jesus came into the world, and it behooved me to write a lot about it, and it behooves you all to listen. Because this is really, really big and really important. It's not only the length of the second half of the Gospel of John that's, that tells us how important it is. It's not only that we see it's concentrated in one day, but also its mood and its feeling. Have you noticed that? The mood and the feeling of that day clues us in to how important this is. And you can see that right in the first five verses, can't you, that we read. So starting in the first five verses that we read, running all the way through, there's a strong sense of pathos and gravitas here. What do I mean by that? There's a lot of emotion and seriousness in this second half. Do you, do you pick that up as you read it? Do you get that sense of this is really weighty? Jesus is being very emotional and everything he's saying is very serious which cues us in that this is a big deal. Now, why is Jesus so emotional and serious on this occasion? The obvious answer might be, well, he knows he's about to die, right? And we think of the Garden of Gethsemane and how Jesus in the Synoptic Gospels is, is so overcome with grief and emotion that he's falling on his face he doesn't want to be alone, but at the same time, he kind of wants to be alone so he can cry out to God with, with tears, and he's sweating so profusely. And we might say, well, what explains all that emotion and all that seriousness is, is that Jesus is right on the precipice of his death. He's about to bear the full curse of sin, and that's no little thing for him to face. So obviously, he's emotional and serious. But I think if that, if that was our answer as to why Jesus was emotional and somber on this occasion, we aren't getting the full picture because there's a further reason that Jesus is so emotional and serious. And do you know what it is? And it's pretty clear, actually, if you just think about it in the second half of the Gospel of John. The reason why Jesus has this mood is not only because he's about to die for the sins of the world, but because Jesus is leaving his disciples and he's not going to see them for a long time and they're not going to see him. He's returning to the Father and leaving his disciples. And that explains his emotion coming through as he's talking to them because he loves them and he's leaving them. Did you know, brothers and sisters, that Jesus really wants to be with you? Do you know that's true? That Jesus is really sad when he left. I mean, he says it's, of course, expedient that I'm going. It's good. The Holy Spirit is going to come. But Jesus longs to be with his people. And being apart from his people, it's hard for us to be apart from him. It's hard for Jesus also to be apart from us. And of course, it's true in a sense that we're always with him and he is always with us. And he says that. He gives us that promise. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. 
And there's a true sense in which we are with him. The, the Bible tells us, you are dead and your life is hidden with Christ in God, right? And so that's all true. But it's also true that we can't see him. And his presence, in a sense, is not with us. And the way that we're going to relate with Jesus in the future when we're with him isn't possible at this time. And so we aren't with him in a very real sense. And he longs for us as we long for him. I mean, we are his bride, the Bible tells us, right? And he is our bridegroom. And I don't think when the second coming happens, Jesus is kind of just oblivious in heaven, not really worrying about coming. And then the father says, it's time to come. He says, oh, okay, really, all right, gotcha. It's time to come. But Jesus himself is longing to come. And so not only is he facing the cross, but he's facing leaving his disciples. And in the second half of the Gospel of John, Jesus gives his disciples instruction and comfort and guidance for his time while he's gone. These are his last words, and that's why it's called his farewell discourse. He's saying goodbye here, and it's an emotional goodbye. And when you realize that's what's going on here in Jesus' heart, then you realize his words to his disciples, it's not just for those 12, it's for all of us as well. So for example, John 16, 33, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you, you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good courage. I have overcome the world. That's him giving his parting words. He's saying, I'm going to be gone. It's going to be hard, but... You can have peace knowing that I've overcome the world. And that's not just for the 12, that's for us as well. So when we realize this setting, we realize this, this farewell discourse is for you and I. So this is what I wanted to say in general about the second half of the Gospel of John. It's, it's concentrated, it's important, it's emotional, and it's for you and I. It's not just we get to you know, merely hear what Jesus is saying to his 12, but it's really what he's saying to his church. So secondly, let's talk about the farewell discourse itself. It's an impressive fact that the farewell discourse takes up the majority of the second half of the Gospel of John. We've got five chapters, chapters 13 through 17, in which Jesus is with his disciples in that upper room and then in the garden, talking to them in private. And... Those five chapters are like a cocoon. What I mean is, those five chapters are Jesus and his disciples removed from the chaos of the world around them. They're in an insulated, soundproof shell, and it's quiet. And he's speaking with them in that privacy and in that intimacy. The Gospel of John is a really noisy book. A lot of it is in public. A lot of it is noise and commotion. The public is arguing about Jesus, and Jesus is crying out in the streets, and Jesus is arguing with the leaders of Israel, and the leaders of Israel are talking among their, themselves, not knowing what to do with him, or they're crying out to Pilate, crucify him, or they're wailing, as they go to the tomb. It's a noisy book. 
But yet in the Gospel of John, we have these five chapters that is completely different than the rest of the book. Because the public world is raging outside. Before this and after this, it's all raging, but not in that upper room. There you have privacy, quiet. I think even when, when I think of the upper room and that farewell discourse, I think of the disciples are motionless and even breathless as he's talking to them. Don't you think you would be if you were there? As he's talking, and he's got all that, that gravitas and that seriousness, and I'm leaving you, and I'm, he's emotional, and you know this is not like any other meal you've had with Jesus. And you're sitting there not wanting to like stir and miss anything, and you're holding your breath as he's sharing all these profound things about his father and what's about to happen. So I hope you see as you, as you read the Gospel of John the real difference in the ambience and the noise. The commentator G. Campbell Morgan says this, Jesus is with his own. The world is shut out. All the clamor of the voices of his foes is silenced. All the hubbub of the curious and questioning crowd is hushed. And A.B. Bruce, another commentator in his classic book, The Training of the Twelve, says this, Jesus has uttered his final word to the outside world and withdrawn himself within the bosom of his own family. And we are privileged here to see him among his spiritual children and to hear his farewell words to them in view of his decease. It becomes us to enter the supper chamber with deep reverence. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. So I hope as we, as we enter into this section and as, as you read this section, you get that sense that this is holy ground. He's withdrawn from the world. Now when I say Jesus has withdrawn from the world, we need to not make any mistake that he's not actually retreating from the world. He's not giving up on the world. And what we're learning here in this section is not to hide from the world and build our little shells and go in them. That's not the takeaway message from this upper room discourse. Because we could maybe be tempted to think that, right? Wow, this is such a beautiful, peaceful moment in the Gospel of John. Jesus himself brought them there. Maybe that's what Jesus is saying. Just kind of make a little enclave. Insulate yourself from the world. Withdraw, retreat, give up. But when you hear what Jesus is saying in that space, brothers and sisters, you realize the purpose of their isolation from the world at that moment is actually to prepare the disciples to go back into the world and to preach the gospel. Amen? That's why he's brought them apart, is to send them back again. The theologian Frederick Brenner puts it this way, believe it or not, we disciples are the main way the now risen Lord wants to reach his world. And I I like how he says, believe it or not, because it's kind of crazy, right? He's God, he's the Lord, and he's choosing you and me to reach the world. And that's kind of scary when you think about who you are. But Jesus realizes in order for him to send us out, he needs to pull us in. He needs to train us. He needs to equip us. He needs to teach us. He needs to tell us things. 
and then send us out to continue our mission. So I think we learn an extremely important lesson from what Jesus does here. Before we go out into the world on our mission to reach the world, which is what Jesus has commissioned us as a church and as Christians to do, first we have to be separated from the world, taken apart from it, and instructed and taught by the Lord. And we need to get rid of the thoughts in our head that are untrue. We need to get rid of the voices of the world and hear the voice of the Lord. That's, that's the order of the day, really, isn't it, for us as Christians? I mean, if you think about your life, what is it all about? Work? Entertainment? Those are all good and important things. Or is the purpose of your life mission, and therefore a significant part of your life is turning your ear away from the voice of the world and all of the things that it's doing and saying and hearing what Jesus is saying and hearing what God is saying and filling your heart and your mind with his truth so you can go and preach and tell and shine. Jesus says in his prayer in John 17, sanctify them by your truth. The word sanctify means set them apart. Make them different from the world by the truth. That's what marks us as Christians, isn't it? And that's what marks the church. That's what sets us apart from the world. You've got a lot of people in the world who are looking pretty good because they focus their attention on being moral and being the best people that they can be, the best husbands and mothers and, you know, friends that they can be. And that's, you know, there's, there's a place for that. But the world is not in truth. The world is in darkness. And if, as a Christian, you think our mission as a church and as a Christian is just to run out into the world and just be a good person, you're missing the point. You're not, you're not even listening to what Jesus is teaching and what Jesus is saying, Right? The mission is to proclaim the truth. And the truth that Jesus proclaims is there is no one who's good. I know that when you go out in the world, that's all you hear, right? I think we're all generally good. A few of us are bad. But as long as you're trying your best, as long as you're making the effort, I think there's lots of roads to God because the point of it all is just being good. And Jesus says, come apart and let me tell you the truth and sanctify you by the truth. And of course, the truth isn't only that no one is good and no one is righteous. The truth is the truth of who God is as well. Amen? In fact, the only way we can see that we're not good is in light of how pure God truly is. And the only way we can have a, a message that is hopeful and good news to the world is to realize how good and loving God is. And that is something the world doesn't understand. Because the gospel is that God loves and is merciful towards and forgives through his son and saves the unrighteous and the sinners and not the good. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And then the next thing Jesus says is, as the Father has sent me into the world, so I send you into the world. We have to be sanctified by the truth before we can go on our mission. So that's the order of the day, friends. Set apart by the truth and sent out. 
I don't think this is a one-time thing either. I don't think Jesus got together with his disciples apart from the chaotic crowd only once, right here. So I don't think the disciples were thinking that night, this is so nice, I wish we had done this before. I'm sure Jesus had gotten with them to get uh, apart many, many times and taught them and instructed them. This is undoubtedly the most emotional, intense time they've probably ever had. But many times before and many times after, the disciples would have gotten together and encouraged one another and comforted one another with the words of God and strengthened one another and taught one another with the words of God, don't you think? Or do you think the disciples never needed to be comforted and strengthened by the words of God after this day? So I see this as not a one-time thing, but this is something that we constantly need if we're going to succeed in our mission. We constantly need to be separating ourselves from the world, finding those times of quiet together in which we can hear the word of God again and be comforted and strengthened to go back into the world again on our mission. And so I think what we see here is a, we, we must learn a balance between separation and engagement and a balance between coming and going. I think of Christians as fighter jets on an aircraft carrier, right? In the midst of war, all hands on deck, every fighter jet is needed, and you have a mission, and you need to go on that mission, but you also need to return to ship, right? And a fighter jet that only goes and never comes isn't going to be too helpful, right? And a fighter jet that only stays on the ship and never goes is never going to be too helpful either. And so you need to ask yourself as a Christian, you know, at what point are you in your life right now? Or are, have you struck that balance of going and coming, of mission and of separation? Coming to church is separation, I think. I mean, look at what we're doing right now. It's quiet, the TV's not on, the phone's not ringing, hopefully, right? <laughs> the babies aren't crying. Uh, and we're here listening together to the Word of God and, and, and hearing His truth and realigning ourselves. And what's the purpose of that, right? Well, of course, for you to be comforted, encouraged, to have good courage, because this is a hard world to live in as we wait in the absence of Jesus. We want to know and remember His love and enjoy that. But, and that's all right. And it's also to send us out to carry on the mission. Before moving to the last uh, section this morning, I'd like to just briefly give six key characteristics of the farewell discourse. Number one, even though this is the longest Last Supper narrative of all the Gospels, there is no mention of the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper institution in the Gospel of John, which is interesting. So the, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke is it's quite short in what they say, what, what happened in that upper room, what they say happened uh, on that evening, but they all include 
the, the giving of the Lord's Supper, when Jesus took the bread and the wine and said, this is my body, this is my blood. John doesn't mention that. And it's not because John doesn't think that happened. John was there. John knows his readers know that is part of the story. But again, we encounter here John's narrow focus. He's not just giving us the history of what happened. He's got a very narrow focus. And that is, his purpose is to tell us the crux, the, the meat, the theological significance and meaning of what is going on. So if you want just kind of the historical details, which is extremely important, by the way, read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But if you want to meditate on what it's all about, then John comes to our aid. Number two, one of the key characteristics of the farewell discourse is love. And is Jesus teaching about love? Now, one commentator I was reading this week said, when you come to the second half of the Gospel of John, and in particular the farewell discourse, it's like there's an avalanche of love. Because in the last 12 chapters of the Gospel, the word love has only been mentioned six times in the last 12 chapters. In the next five chapters, the word love is mentioned 31 times. So Jesus has a lot to say about love in his farewell parting words to us. That's a big deal to Jesus. And John's saying, that's really important. Love. The Father's love for the Son. The Son's love for the Father. The Father's love for his children. And God's children's love for one another. Huge. So I hope that even just seeing that statistic makes you think, man, if I haven't been thinking much about love, I'm not sanctifying myself in the truth. If I'm not thinking much about love, I'm kind of missing the, the significant thing here in Jesus' heart, mind, teaching, mission. Love. What's it all about for us? Is the love of God for you big in your mind? It's always a good litmus test in my own life. I know that whenever I, I read verses about God's love for me, and whenever they seem small or insignificant or unimportant or nullified or something, I always know that it's a litmus test. Something's wrong in my life. Something's wrong in my heart, right? When the love of God or even that thought of his love for me is just kind of, oh yeah, I got that. And I always know something's right in my life when I think, God loves me. Wow, that's amazing. And love for each other. It's a good litmus test of our spiritual health and our mindset. We find ourselves not loving one another, then we should say, man, I'm missing this thing. Maybe I need to go back to the aircraft carrier and remember what's going on and what this is all about. Amen? So love. Number three, the Holy Spirit. This is uh, the farewell discourse contains Jesus' most extensive teaching about the Holy Spirit. And one of Jesus' main points is, I'm leaving 
but I'm not leaving you alone because the Father is sending another comforter and he will be with you. So the Holy Spirit is a significant key characteristic here in Jesus' final teaching. We need to see our dependence upon the Holy Spirit. I think if we're just plowing through life and we're not realizing, I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I need to be instructed by the Holy Spirit. I need to not rely upon my flesh and my own strength. Because when Jesus was leaving, he talked a lot about the Spirit and the coming of the Spirit. So that should tell us that our lives need to be oriented towards God and his power and his provision in our life, in all things, but especially in teaching according to Jesus. Because the Spirit primarily is coming to teach you truth. Again, the importance of truth. Number four, key characteristic in the farewell discourse, Jesus gives two more and his two final I am statements when he tells us about who he is. And he says these two things, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. What a statement. Perfectly relevant in our age. So Jesus continues to teach us about himself. We need to continue to learn about who he is. And he is the truth, the way, and the life. And he also says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. There is no fruit, no life, no nothing, he even says, actually. You can do nothing apart from me. And so Jesus teaches us about how crucial it is to realize that he is the vine, and we must be connected to him. He talks about prayer. This is the fifth important key characteristic. Jesus talks about prayer and how we have access to God as his children and as believers in Christ, and he promises that God hears our prayers and answers our prayers. And we'll talk about that, Lord willing, as we pray according to the will of God. So Jesus emphasizes how we have access and connection with God. And then finally, a key characteristic of this last section is Jesus prays himself to the Father. And here's the things he prays for. He prays for protection from the evil one. We need that. He prays for unity, and he prays for our reunion, our reunion with him. So these are the key characteristics of that farewell discourse. In sum, his last words are basically saying this, I'm leaving, but I'm coming back. I won't leave you alone. You have a mission in the meantime. You're going to be hated by the world. Be courageous. The Spirit will be with you. Keep your focus. Be hopeful. Pray to God for you have access to him. And I shall pray for you. And we will be together again. In other words, his parting words give us the essence of the Christian life between the two advents. That's what he's focused on, which is our lives, which is my life and yours. So the last thing I'd like us to look at this morning is the first thing that Jesus does in the second half of the Gospel of John. And we read the first five verses, and I'd like to just look at that and make a few comments about what we've read. So look with me at verse 1 of chapter 13. 
John begins this way. Now, before the feast of the Passover, there's an apparent contradiction here, actually, with John and the Synoptic Gospels. And this is often pointed out by skeptics. They point out that Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that Jesus, when he ate that last supper with his disciples, ate the Passover meal with the rest of the nation. So when everyone else was eating the Passover, Jesus and the disciples were eating the Passover. But here it seems to say that Jesus has his meal with his disciples before the Passover. And there's a few other verses that we encounter in the coming chapters that seem to indicate that the Passover meal hasn't even happened yet and that Jesus, in fact, is crucified on the day that the rest of the nation is eating the meal. So basically, as evening is coming and they're breaking the legs of the thieves, that's the evening everyone's eating the Passover meal and Jesus is hanging on the cross. He ate the meal the day before. So it's a common apparent contradiction and there's two common ways that Bible scholars have dealt with this. Number one, they've said, if you look at the historical records and Jewish writings and the rabbis' commentaries on the law, you get a sense that some people in Israel ate the Passover meal the day before everybody else ate the Passover meal. And so one of the explanations they give is Jesus and his disciples ate the Passover meal the day before, and then when everyone else basically ate the Passover meal, he was, he was being crucified. And they say, well, part of the explanation for that is maybe there was a calendar dispute. Some people thought Passover was on one day, some people thought it was on the other, and they couldn't resolve it, so the priests accepted Passover sacrifices on both days. Or it was a practical issue. There's so many people, millions of people, that came to celebrate the Passover that they just couldn't do it all in one day, so they kind of expanded it to the other day. So that's one way that scholars answer that and they explain how is it that he's eating the Passover and then it tells us it was before that. But other scholars don't like that and they say, no, John actually agrees with the synoptics that Jesus ate it with everybody else and that right here as we read verse 1, before the feast of the Passover, all it means is before they're about to eat right then and there. Jesus did what he did. You see that in verse 1? As they're about to eat the Passover feast, Jesus did what he did. And then they say the other verses that seem to indicate that the timing is off, we just misunderstand them. And that actually, it's not the meal that's coming up, it's just the rest of the, the festivals that are coming up, the rest of the feast that's coming up, which actually lasted seven days. So these are different ways scholars deal with it. I think both are satisfying but I take the second way I think Jesus is eating the meal with everybody else it's just important to say that because and maybe you've already known this but when people bring up apparent Bible contradictions friends I've found just from experience that those who bring up the Bible contradictions don't spend much time thinking about how those contradictions may be resolved and in my own experience, it seems like every single one of them that I've ever heard has 
a way of being harmonized, and actually some in very interesting ways. Like for example, there's been apparent contradictions that nobody really knew how to harmonize, and then after we've dug up more things in the ground, we've realized, oh my goodness, the Bible was right all along. So it's just kind of interesting. Now, did you notice the awkward word, the awkward wording of John in these first verses? Did you notice it? He's got an awkward way of writing here. He's, he's getting to his point, but he gets there. He takes a long time to get to what Jesus did, and he's got all these thoughts, and they don't seem to fit together so well. It seems like he's almost tripping over himself as he's, as he's saying what he's saying. And you get the sense that John is trying to communicate something so powerful, so marvelous, and he's saying this moment was so amazing and you really can't understand what Jesus did unless you understand kind of the context. And he's just tripping over himself trying to give that context so we can appreciate what Jesus did and his thoughts are bumping into each other. And he's saying Jesus did this amazing thing and he did it in the full knowledge of X, Y, and Z. What did Jesus know? Verse 1. He knew his time had come. He knew his time was up. He knew his hour had arrived. And he knew he was going to die. And John wants us to understand, when Jesus did this amazing thing for us, he knew that he was about to die. Furthermore, John wants us to know that he did this amazing thing and he loved his disciples. He says in verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He did this because he loved us. He did this because he loved his own. And I get a sense of, of admiration there in John. He said he loved them to the end. I think John is admiring Jesus. He loved his own. He loved them to the end. His love is amazing, John is saying to us. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel admiration for the love of Jesus? In the Gospel of John, there are statements of universal love. John 3.16, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. And there are statements of particular love, such as this verse. This is a statement of how Jesus loves his people, his own, the ones that, he, that are his sheep, the ones that the Father gave to him, he loved them. And what does it mean that John says he loved them to the end? Well, it could mean two things. One, it could be a temporal statement that he loved them to the end of his life. He loved them to the end of his mission. He loved them through thick and thin. He didn't quit because right to the very end, he loved them. Or it could be he loved them to the uttermost. He loved them perfectly. He loved them in a way that you could not match, you could not outlove. You could not be loved by someone more than Jesus. And both are certainly true. And both point to the cross. Because if Jesus had not loved us to the end, if he hadn't gone all the way for us, through thick and thin, to the end of the mission, to the end of his life, he just would have got off the cross. 
I'm tired of loving these people. I've loved them thus far. They haven't returned my love. You know, I'm tired of loving these people. I've loved them thus far and it's wounded me up here. I'm done. But if he hadn't loved us to the uttermost, he wouldn't have gotten on the cross. Maybe he loved us all the way to the end, but it wasn't that great of love. I do love you. I just don't love you that much to get on the cross for you, <laughs> you know? Some of us might be able to say I love to the end, but not to the uttermost, right? <laughs> but I think if you love to the uttermost, you can't but love to the end. Everything points to the cross, to the greatest kind of love, to the forever kind of love. That's what it was. John says more. He did what he did in love. He did what he did knowing he was about to die. He did what he did knowing that the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray him. This is an amazing thing. And John's stumbling over his words to get this across. But he's saying, you can't understand what Jesus did if you don't know that he knew that Judas was going to betray him. And the devil was behind it. The devil was there in the mix in that room, and Jesus did what he did. And it's amazing when you think about it, because you can kind of isolate Judas from everybody else and say, oh, Judas is so bad. That's amazing that Jesus did what he did with Judas there, because Judas is so bad. Or you can realize that Judas represents everybody. True? Or do you think everybody's good except for Judas? You know? I think Judas represents the world. I think Judas represents hostility to God. I think Judas represents siding with Satan. And that's what the world does. And that's what everybody does, were it not for God's grace. And Jesus did what he did. And John is amazed by it. John is amazed that Jesus knew that. A human being would side against God and against Christ and side with the devil, and yet Jesus would love. It's also interesting that the devil, by putting it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus, ruins himself. Because the devil is ruined by the cross, isn't he? He's spoiled by the cross. He's defeated by the cross. And yet we see that the devil is actually involved in sending Jesus to the cross, the devil is prompting his own ruin. And it's just a fascinating thing that we see in the Bible that the devil was outmaneuvered by God, kind of like in Judo. The devil makes his attack and God uses the evil against itself and turns the attack against itself and defeats evil and overcomes it with good. And lastly, John wants us to understand that when Jesus did what he did, he knew something else in verse 3. And this is different than in verse 1, because in verse 1, he says, Jesus did what he did, knowing his hour had come. That is, he knows he's about to die. But here, Jesus did what he did, knowing exactly who he is. Jesus knows he is from God. Jesus knows he is not a man, merely. Jesus knows he is the eternal word and son of the Father. And Jesus knows he's going back to God. 
So he knows who he is. He knows his origin. He knows his destination. He knows his nature. And it also says something interesting. He knows that the Father had given all things into his hands. So he knows his power. He knows his rights. He knows his responsibilities. He knows his possessions. He knows what he's got. He knows who he is and what he's got. And John doesn't explain what he's got. John doesn't tell us what the all things that are put into his hands. And we, have, we could say different things. I mean, we could say the mission is in Jesus' hands. Kind of like the Father saying, okay, Jesus, it's all on you now. Or all authority is in your hands, as Jesus says somewhere else. Or all God's people is in his hands. Or all the knowledge of God and what God does is in his hands. Or as one commentator says, everything important is in his hands. We don't know. But everything is in his hands. I like what Augustine said so long ago, that the Son should be such as the Father is. I think that's the, that's the idea. What it means to have everything in his hands is that Jesus is on earth everything that the Father is. That's a big deal. And the, the question is, knowing all of that and, and having all of that in his hands, what does Jesus do? Or to put it another way, what do hands do that have all things in them? It's kind of scary to think, eh? We're going to put everything into the hands of one person. What are they going to do with that? And we read in verse 4 and 5, He got up from supper, he laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. He poured water into the basin, and he began to wash with those same hands in which all things were in. <laughs> what hands those were. He began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And John wants us to, to read that and go, Wow. So if you're not thrilled and amazed by that, that's just because you're not seeing what John wants you to see. After reading that introduction, we might have expected something else. Knowing he was about to die, Jesus became self-absorbed. He couldn't think about anyone else or anything. All he could think about was the pain and the suffering he was about to face as he bore the full wrath of God and the curse for our sins. He totally checked out. Or Jesus, knowing that Judas was in cahoots with the devil and about to betray him into the hands of death, snapped his fingers and snapped Judas in two. Right? That's maybe what we would have expected. Or, Jesus, knowing his exalted and transcendent origin and nature in place with the Father, and that he is the Son of the Father, and knowing that all things are in his hand, and he is such as the Father is. Well, if he was any other God, brothers and sisters, he would have extracted himself out of there. If he was any other God. He would have out-Brexited Brexit. And we would have given it a term called Devon Exit. He's gone. 
And how many of you would have done that if you were in his shoes? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> you would have, and I would have. But that's not what Jesus did, and it's truly amazing. He didn't get self-absorbed. He didn't say, I'm above these people, I'm out of here. He didn't say, they're all wicked people in cahoots with the devil, I'm going to kill them all. The hands that have all things in them took up the servant's attire and began to serve the wretches. That is amazing. And the disciples were stunned. The one to whom angels bow down and cover their face and don't even look and cover their feet and fly around singing, holy, 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 he bows down and washes the feet of human beings who are evil. It's amazing. It's amazed Christians for years. In the fifth century, there was a bishop named Severian of Gabala, which is in Syria, modern day. He said this, He who wraps the heavens in clouds wrapped round himself a towel. He who pours the water into the rivers and pools tipped water into a basin. He before whom every knee bends in heaven and on earth and under the earth knelt to wash the feet of the disciples. This has amazed Christians for years. And it will never cease amazing us. We'll never stop being amazed. Modern day hymn writer said this, We strain to glimpse your mercy seat and find you kneeling at our feet. Have you ever strained to see God? I wonder what God is like. It's hard to see him. It's hard to, is he really merciful? I'm trying to, and then you realize he's there kneeling at my feet, washing them. And it's not because Jesus had a moment of temporary insanity. That's John's point here. It's not because Jesus was just so overwhelmed, he just forgot who he was, forgot what was happening. John tells us it was precisely because Jesus knew who he was and what he, what he was doing. So what John is saying is that's what God is like. When God thinks about himself as God, he serves. Isn't that amazing? He loves to the end in the full knowledge of our evil and in the full knowledge of how worthy and holy and good he is. That's God. And that's the whole point of the Gospel of John and the coming of Jesus is to reveal to us who God is, who we are and who the Father is. And Jesus is here revealing it, setting the tone for everything that's coming, encapsulating everything that's coming because this is even bigger than just washing feet, isn't it? Jesus is going to go to the cross and he's going to wash us clean our, from our sins by his blood and serve us in that unfathomable way as the suffering servant that the Bible talks about. And there's echoes of Philippians 2 here, isn't there, that Jesus being in the form of God did not count it um, robbery to be in the form of God, meaning he doesn't, he's not temporarily going insane and forgetting he's God. He knows he's God and yet he comes and puts on the form of a servant, humbling himself, taking away his reputation, and becoming obedient to the death of the cross to save wretches like you and me.
That's how amazing our God is. And I just like to preach, reminding you, exhorting you, encouraging you today. Brothers and sisters and friends, God is like that, according to the Bible. And God loves you. And God died for your sins. And God wants you to be with him. I know it's crazy. And God offers that to you freely. It's not something you have to earn and prove to God you're some person worthy of it because he knows you're not worthy of it. He knows the sins you committed yesterday that nobody else does. He knows the sins you've ever committed and he knows the sins you ever will commit and he loves you and he serves you and he gives eternal life freely to those who simply believe. That's the good news. So praise the Lord for being so awesome and for Jesus for doing what he did and showing us the Father. In closing, we live between the two advents of Christ. So let us marvel at what God has done for us. And let us continue the mission that God has for us to do. And let us look forward to the coming again of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Please stand with me and let's give God thanks. Father, we trip over our own words and our own thoughts trying to articulate how amazing you are and what you've done for us. And Lord, we give you thanks. Help us to see afresh this morning that we are loved by you and served by you in a truly stunning way. Encourage us all, I pray, by the... the hearing of your word and the works of your son. And Lord, I ask that we would be comforted and equipped and sanctified. Send us forth now, Lord, to continue the mission of proclaiming the truth of who you are and that you might be glorified and praised in our lives and in this world. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.